Kids, I want to start just with a quick word to you. I don't know if you uh, get to get out and play a lot and just kind of uh, play with bugs that you see out in the yard. Uh, maybe it's ants. Maybe it's you know annoying gnats that are really around right now or whatever creepy crawlies that you find out there. I wonder if you ever think about how amazing it is that these little things, these bugs, these creatures, these ants, that they have life in them, that they have life and they move and they, they, uh, they pick up um, things and carry them. I remember just this week I was moving our big trash uh, dumpster things uh, to put to the side of the street for pickup and I found underneath there were all these ants that had made a home there and worms and and clearly, after I'd moved uh, these trash receptacles, they weren't too happy with me, and they started scurrying around, and it looks like they had found a bunch of rice down there as well, and they were carrying the rice off after I had moved those trash um, receptacles. And again, it was just this amazing picture of life squirming around before me. I wonder if you've played with ants or worms that way in your yard. Or maybe you've even... Um, decide it'll be fun just to kind of squish one of them and, and see what would happen or pick up one of the worms and see it wriggle in your, in your hand and, and then squeeze it a little bit. But if you think about it, it's this amazing thing where one moment this ant could be lifting up this huge thing that is like five, 10 times its body weight and full of life. And then you could just, as this humongous kid in comparison to the ant, just squish it and take the life from it. We have a puppy right now and I like to wrestle with the puppy every now and then, but sometimes I get a little bit scared because I'm so much bigger than this puppy. And when I wrestle with our puppy, I get worried that, well, what if I like accidentally like squish it too hard or break its neck? So I try to be careful even while having some rough and tumble with um, the puppy, which the puppy loves. Life is this amazing thing. Right? We see life in ants. We see life in puppies. And we ourselves, as human beings, have this life in us, this life that has been given to us by God, this, 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 this thing that, that, that animates our body and enables us to move around and speak and think and, and feel. And yet, like ants, our life can be taken away easily. And that's why... God says very seriously in the Bible over and over again that to take a life is a serious thing. But that's just on kind of an earthly, physical level. In our passage today, God is talking about not just the physical, but that, that there is a, a spiritual, eternal life that he wants for all of humanity, that he doesn't want to see anyone die and not know him, not Dwell with him for all eternity in eternal life. And God reminds us that it's not just the physical life that's important, but the eternal spiritual life is even more important. And I hope that as you go about your day, as you go about your week, that you see this precious thing called life that exists in you, exists in other creatures, in your friends, in your family members, and that you know that God is the one who gives life physically here on earth, but also God is the only one who can give eternal life, enable us to live forever with him. 
And I hope you have any questions about that that you would ask your mom and dad. What does it mean to live with God forever? What does it mean to have eternal life and to have them explain to you this precious thing called life and the even more precious thing, which is God himself, who is the giver of life. Thanks for tuning in so far, but as we dig into today's text, I I do hope you continue to listen in, or maybe, again, your parents will excuse you, Um, but thanks for joining in. Kids and adults alike, I want to start just by asking this simple question. Where do you find life? Or where do we as human beings find life? Is it from the God of the Bible? Is it from within? Is it from justice? Is it from love? Is it from some great ideal that we, we, we champion? Is it from a utopian society we believe humans are creating? Is it from marriage? Is it from, from work? Is it from, from family? Where do you find life? And the answer to that question in you, in you is it, it points to wherever you ultimately look for life is also what you worship. Um, Amber and I, during this time of uh, being sheltering in place, we've been binging on this show that's called Parenthood. And it's based on a California family called the Bravemans. And there's kind of a strong patriarch, uh, the grandfather in the story, who's clearly a flawed man. But at the same time, there's this theme of him speaking life into his, his, his children, into his grandchildren. And so it's this family of this, uh, this, this story of, of, of again, this, this patriarch, grandfather, Zeke, and three generations of a family and, and, and um, you know, and their story. And the Bravermans are not a, not a religious family. Um, and, and what they clearly value above all else is family. You know, their motto could be, and they probably say it a few times in the show, is do for family. And we see over and over again how they're there for each other. And, uh, you know, all the spouses that marry into the Bravemans, it's like their family of origin is of no consequence whatsoever. They just get sucked into the orbit of the Braverman family. And their religion, they would say, and again, they're not a religious family, their religion is going to baseball games on Sundays. Um, as an extended family, they go to uh, all of each other's kids' uh, sporting games and, and, and recitals and, and they're just always there for each other. And, they're, and they're, it's almost funny because their commitment to one another's family is both inspiring but also makes it seem like how can you have time for anything else other than for one another? I mean, let's be honest. We, we do know a lot of families like that, like the Bravemans. Um, and I think we could even say it's what we love about Iowa, that Iowa has this emphasis on family. And this emphasis on family is great, like the Bravemans, but it can also be a stumbling block. We, we know families who are religious, but maybe only in a Sunday church attendance kind of way. And for, again, for many families, family is what comes first above all else. But Jesus' words to us, there's a warning in that. Yes, God made family, but he also says that we are to love those who aren't our family, who aren't our friends. And that Jesus even goes as far, so far to say that we must be willing to leave our father and mother to follow him, if that's what it requires. It's not usually that dramatic in America, but we can think of uh, people in Muslim countries who, are, who have heard the gospel and considering 
to follow Jesus or even Muslim families in America who hear the gospel message and are considering to follow Jesus, they often have to count the cost of being ostracized by their family if they choose to follow Jesus. Where do we find life? Do we find life in family or some other thing in this world? A family is a good example because it's such a good thing. It's this, this key thing that God has given to this world, and yet even family can become the absolute thing that we find life in rather than God himself. And in today's passage in Revelation 22, we are given this image of life-giving waters of God. And this image makes really this absolute claim that ultimately life can only be found in Jesus. Absolute Jesus is whom we are to worship and in whom we are to find life to the full. The image of the life-giving water of God in Jerusalem makes us ask this question, where do we find life ultimately? Do we find it in something as good as family, but yet somehow above God? Or do we find life in Jesus? Jesus himself said in John 14, verse six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we're gonna explore this concept today and we're really coming to the end of Revelation here. It is the last chapter of Revelation. And, and, and as I've said throughout this series, this book was meant to unveil our spiritual eyes to the spiritual reality going on around us. We can so easily tunnel vision into what is earthly. And this book is trying to shake us to see things from a heavenly perspective, to th- see things from a future perspective, but ironically also to see things from the perspective of the oppressed whom God will bring justice for. And this book has pulled back the curtain on the constant temptations that humanity has dealt with all around the world throughout all the eras in the forms of power, violence, affluence, and pleasure. And we could say all sins, all idols can be traced back to or categorized under one of those four things, one of those four temptations. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount properly exegetes two commandments that most directly deal with violence and pleasure. Do not murder and do not commit adultery. You have to ask the question, why did Jesus choose to exegete those two particular commandments as opposed to any other? He understood the power of violence and pleasure as temptations in our life. But if we pull back the curtain even further, as Revelation is trying to do for us, we find a basic lie that we're always tempted to believe. It is the original lie that Satan told humanity. And that lie is that everything should be centered around humans, whether individually or collectively, rather than being centered around God himself, the creator and the redeemer. It is the original lie that Satan tempted humanity to believe that we can define where to find life and death. We can define what is good and bad. We can define light and darkness rather than God himself. And as Paul writes in Romans 1, they, referring to humans, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so again, Revelation has taught us when we make an absolute thing of a created thing of this world what we end up doing is we make God not absolute. When we make God not absolute, then what we will find is we will find 
spiritual death. So where do we find life? It can only be God through Jesus Christ who can ultimately give us life and life to the full. And the main idea that we're gonna explore today is this, and this is really, I would say, an idea that's really overarching the whole book of Revelation that that calls us to here at the end of the book. Since we have found life in Christ through weakness, let us not be militants, rather martyrs for Christ. Since we have found life in Christ through weakness, let us not be militants, rather martyrs for Christ. Another way we can put it is we're not meant to power up on others. Rather, we are to lay down our lives for others. You heard me read the passage a little bit earlier, Revelations 22, verses one through five. And what we see here is that the, the picture that is, it's, is being painted is an allusion, again, to an Old Testament text in Ezekiel 47, this, this picture of a river that flows, that brings life. And in Ezekiel 47, it was specifically the image where there was the, the river flowing out of the temple that brought life. And so let me just read you verse 12 of Ezekiel 47. There it says, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor would their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for, leaves for healing. We see, if you just listen, you see there's so much similarity between even just this one verse that I read and what was spoken of in Revelation 22. And so let's just highlight a few things here in the image of the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the New Jerusalem. Verses one and two, we see that the river is flowing through the main street of New Jerusalem. This is not some back alleyway in the city. This is like Madison Avenue in Manhattan. Um, often Madison Avenue symbolizes the, the power, the culture, the wealth, and the significance of New York City, sometimes known as the greatest city in the world. I'm sure people will challenge that, but um, this idea of Madison Avenue, you know, exemplifies all that is powerful um, and cultural of that city. And so this image of the river flowing through, the, there's the main street of Jerusalem, symbolizes that this river is going through the main thoroughfare, and this main thoroughfare affects, affects everything in the life of the city, affects everyone in the city. It brings life to everyone in the city. And the image that is further painted is of this, this tree of life bearing fruit throughout all seasons for all people with this perfect number of 12. It is an image of how the new Jerusalem fulfills what the Garden of Eden was always meant to be. But this is not just a paradise garden anymore. It is a paradise garden melded with a paradise city for believers from every tribe and nation and language and people. And these leaves of these tree, this, this tree of life brings, brings healing to the nations, bring healing to the brokenness that, that we experience in this world now. And it is a, a healing for all those who dwell in new Jerusalem through faith in Christ forever and ever. And then in th verses three and four, we move on to this idea that, that, and we're reminded of the fact that the new Jerusalem is not just a place. It is, uh, uh, it is, uh, is, 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 it is the, the paradise of this place is again, not just, it's an amazing place. The paradise is the fact that the people of God dwell in the presence of God forever. That that is 
almost the, the, the center of what it means to be a paradise. All the curses that humanity has experienced in this world will be lifted in this new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem in the presence of God. But this imagery that is painted here in this text is of this deep intimacy with God. It is this fulfillment of the ironic prayer um, from Numbers that, that I pray almost every Sunday as the benediction. You have to remember that in Old Testament times that the Jews would not even say God's name, that the Jews did not see God face to face because of his utter holiness. Remember God's words to Moses when he says in Exodus 33, 20, but he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. God was not trying to hide, uh, God was not trying to hide from Moses um, you know, just for the sake of being coy or being difficult, he recognized that it was a mercy to not show Moses his face given God's holiness and man's unholiness. But here in this, paint, this picture that is painted in Revelation 22 in this new Jerusalem forever, God's name will be written on our foreheads God's glorious face will shine on us and illumine darkness away from us forever. The lamb that was slain has cleansed us by his blood. And the focus is not on the literalness of the, of, of the writing on our forehead and, the, and, the, and God's face shining on us. They are symbols of our intimacy with God forever. We do not need to fear bearing God's name anymore because we will be fully redeemed and justify before God. We do not need to fear to see his glorious holy face because we have been washed by the blood of the lamb and are fully accepted and affirmed in God's eyes. We have found life through Jesus' glorious acts of weakness, through his incarnation, his ministry, and his sacrificial death on the cross. And he defeated the power of sin and death through his resurrection from the dead. So just like Jesus, the Lamb of God, came in weakness, we too must come in weakness. We must come as the sick, not the righteous. We must come as those in need. We must come as the poor. We must come empty-handed with nothing to boast of. We must come in faith, even if it's just a mustard seed of faith in the work of Jesus. We have found life in Christ through weakness, his weakness and our own weakness. And that leads us to this idea that we are called then not to be militants, rather martyrs for Christ. This theme in the revelation of being a, a martyr for our faith. And it doesn't literally mean we all have to die for our faith, but it does match with what Jesus says that if we are to follow him, we must be willing to lay down our lives, that we must be willing to take up our cross and deny ourselves. Revelation uses these images uh, throughout to conform us to God's truth because in the end, Revelation is about God's truth. It is about truth. It is an absolute claims to truth. And the most absolute claim would be that it is only through God that we ultimately find life. Um, I'm gonna quote from a commentary, but I'm, I just wanted to show you guys, these are two commentaries that I've 
really leaned on throughout the study of this, this, this book, but here's uh, one that I highly recommend. This is by Richard Bauckham. You may remember me quoting him a fair bit. This is called, um, this is called The Theology of the Book of Revelation. And this is just, it's a thin book. It's not a lot of pages. But the beauty of this book is um, it really, Bauckham does such a great job of really showing us the key big picture themes of Revelation that so often we get lost in the weeds of all the, the specific imageries that we, we, we lose sight uh, of the big picture. We lose sight of the forest. And, and so this book really helps. I, I recommend anyone who's interested in studying Revelation more in depth um, to, to read this cover to cover. It's great. I mean, I, I literally just wanted to quote from this book constantly, but recognize that that would be a boring sermon. Um, on the other spectrum, uh, you've also heard me quote Beale, G.K. Beale. This is the opposite of brief. Uh, this will show you every possible Old Testament allusion and explain it. And so this is just a great, great, very comprehensive commentary for all of your in-depth questions if, if you're wanting to study Revelation to that depth. But anyway, let me read to you a quote from Richard Bauckham's thinner book. He says this, in Western world today, this witness to the truth does not confront a totalitarian ideology which claims sole truth and seeks to suppress the gospel. Instead, it faces a relativistic despair of the possibility of truth and even more, a consumeristic neglect of the relevance of truth. That's just a couple of sentences, but there's so much packed in there and it's so good. Let me just start by saying this. Most of you know, maybe all of you know, my hometown is Hong Kong and my heart has been so grieved this past week to know that my, my hometown Hong Kong has taken another giant step um, away from the existing self-autonomy that they have from the Chinese government and a further erosion of their freedoms and human rights. My fellow Hong Kong people, including my parents who live there, will increasingly have to grapple with life under a totalitarian government that does demand absolute conformity to their truth and their way. And this is not what we struggle with in the Western world, in America. And I think often what happens for us in America is I think we end up fighting the wrong battles as American Christians, particularly. In America, in America Christians can end up feel like it is the, the, the socialists or the, the progressive culture that is the totalitarian ideology that demands our belief. But that's really not what's going on in the Western world. What really is happening is if God's truth is the truth, and the battle that we face here in the Western world, in America, is not a battle against people with the wrong beliefs. The battle in America is for people who have militantly absolutized their beliefs, and yet somehow, at the same time, despair that they can really know the truth in a pluralistic society, and even struggle to see the relevance of truth even while they're shopping for the meaning of life around them. I don't know if you could really catch what I'm saying here. Yes, there, there is a fight for truth in our, in our nation, but it's, it's really a fight 
against a relativistic truth. And we have to see beyond our disagreements with people and see that they too have had their eyes veiled by sin. They've been deceived by Satan. And that there's always this temptation to absolutize what we think will bring life in this world. And often it's not God that we make absolute, but some other thing. And that's the culture we live in. And that's the dynamics that we exist in as Christians. And it is also why we as the church can end up being militant in sharing our faith rather than sacrificially sharing our faith. But the problem is when we do that, when we become militant in sharing our faith, we have not walked in the way of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who calls us to lay down our lives, to be martyrs rather than to power grab like the beast does. There's this call for us to to, to not absolutize power or prosperity or even what seems like very good ideals. Only God is absolute. When I first moved to the States 27 years ago, it really hit me that there are some American cultural ideals that really stood out as being different than from where I was from, at least. And it was these ideals of freedom and justice. And just like any quality in a person, in a personality, these ideals can be America's greatest strength and also their greatest weakness. It's two sides of a coin. It could be, you know, with regards to freedom, you know, and I think we, we see this debate going on in our culture now. It could be, you know, freedom, gosh darn it, I won't be mandated to wear a mask, right? Or it could be about rights or justice. Justice, gosh darn it, I'm gonna sue you for violating my right not to wear a mask. Or, the, or it could be the other way around. You know, gosh darn it, I'm gonna sue you for violating my right to safety by you not wearing a mask. But that's the irony, right? The irony is that individual rights always constrain other individuals' freedoms. It's never one or the other. There's always just a balance that's going on. You can never get to do just whatever you want if you say you care about loving other people or care about even just not breaking the law. The thing about the book of Revelation is this, is that it is an equal opportunity offender. Revelation is like a masterful comedian who will challenge and make fun of anything they think is worthy of it. Revelation is, is the word of God and God doesn't care if it is Babylon or Syria or Rome or Great Britain or Soviet Union or America or China. All nations are held accountable and all nations are called to find life in the one true God and all peoples of those nations. God is the center of all existence and the definer of all that is right and good and true and noble and beautiful. Bauckham says this, one more quote from Bauckham. The worship of the true God is the power of resistance to the deification of military and political power, the beast, and economic prosperity, Babylon. In the modern age, we may add that it is what can prevent movements of resistance to injustice and oppression from dangerously absolutizing themselves. Revelation insists 
on putting God back square and center in our lives, in the lives of all of humanity where it should be because God is the one true life giver. So for us as Christians, because we have found life in the lamb that was slain, then we cannot be militants rather than Rather, we are to be martyrs for Christ. God uses the weak to show his power. Think of Peter who drew a sword and cut off the ear of the Roman soldier. He acted like a militant rather than a martyr for Christ. Christ says we have to be willing to lay down our lives for others. We are called to die to ourselves. We're called to be martyrs, not militants. Laying down our lives can mean speaking up for others, stepping out of our comfort zone and being an advocate for others. Laying down our lives for others can mean boldly but often fearfully sharing the gospel with someone. Laying down our lives can mean giving up our rights for the sake of others. Laying down our lives can mean, um, well, not can mean, does mean not being seduced by power, by violence, by affluence, by pleasure. Laying down our lives means not making an an ideal or a cause the absolute thing. Laying down our lives means following Jesus wholeheartedly. I wanna share some personal words that are a little bit unscripted. I've been wrestling all week with... um, the George Floyd story and, and all of what comes with that, the protests that were raging last night, well, not raging, but the protests that went on all day yesterday and, 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 and even violence and looting and vandalism that happened last night. And I've just been a little bit of a loss of what to say in some sense. Uh, you may have seen some of these memes, right, of it's like... Uh, the 2020 versus me memes, and one that I can remember right now was where it's the one of Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding, right? Is that famous uh, photo of, of them and Tanya Harding's like looking very, uh, I don't know, suspiciously at Kerrigan. And so, you know, Nancy Kerrigan is, is labeled me and Tanya Harding is labeled 2020, right? And I always think they should move the me on Nancy Kerrigan to her knee, right? Because we, we know. We know what happens there, right? This has just been a, a, rough, a rough year for the world. It's been a rough year for, for our country. And I chose to preach from Revelation uh, mainly for these reasons. I, it was a book that I've been afraid to, to tackle for a long time. It's a book that I thought uh, would be interesting and I thought in the end of my time, uh, as I feared being a lame duck, that maybe at least I should preach from an interesting book that might be controversial. Um, but I've been so grateful to God for having this opportunity to study and preach from this book because it feels like such an appropriate book for what the world is going through, what our country is going through right now. Because again, these powerful words in Revelation puts God at the center as creator, as life giver, as the, the justice bringer, as the redeemer. And it ties together all of what is said in scripture 
Old Testament, New Testament into one book. And we as Christians are called to act accordingly and to participate and persevere in the work of God as we see things from God's perspective. I don't have any super wise words about either our pandemic, all these, all the protests. I know just on a human level with regards to race issues, um, I feel like someone who really doesn't know the answers to those questions. I feel like I didn't grow up here and I don't feel like I understand the depth of what that struggle is or even know American history well enough to know it or read enough books on this issue. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm a minority who's lived in this country for 27 years and, and um, has grown up as a minority in Western circles for most of my life. And I understand what that's like at the same time, not to the same extent to what African-Americans go through. I remember a gentleman that I got to know here in Iowa City over the last three years. And what really struck me was it felt like, and I'm, I'm exaggerating here a little bit, that every month or every couple of months, he lost someone that he loved or knew. And it could have been a shooting. It could have been health reasons. It could have been whatever. But it just felt like so often he was grieving loss in ways that I had no point of reference for. That was not the world that I've ever lived in. And there was a trauma to that. Because when another person died, it felt like the grief wasn't just about grandma, it was about this whole slew of people who, had, he, who, who he had also lost. You know, and some of it could have been related injustice and some of it could just have been poor health or old age. But there was so much grief in him and trauma from losing people that he cared about. I know for me, I'm, I'm on a journey of learning what it means uh, to understand the hurts of African American, Americans specifically, but just minorities in general in the US. I don't have the same point of reference and experience as many or most minorities have grown up in the US. But I point us back to some very simple words um, in scripture, and I believe strongly in these, that this, for every Christian, no matter what color or race you are, that, that these exhortations from God are a lifelong journey of sanctification and will do us so well as we wrestle as a church, as a city, as a nation with these very difficult topics. And you've heard me quote this, Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And clearly, in what we're going through right now, we're talking about the ability to weep with those who weep. Do we have the ability to weep with those who weep? Or do we find ways to, to not hear what they're weeping over, to, to, to rationalize or argue against their grief? Are we able to weep with those who weep? Or James 1.19, it's another one that you may have memorized in your life. James, James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger.
We see it, right? We see the vicious cycle of, of angry social media thing that we are just living in. And, and we just, we have to be able to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, if we're gonna make any headway as the church or as the nation. We must learn as a people, and particularly as Christians, to grieve first. It is too easy to live in anger. And when we do so, what we end up doing is we end up sinning in our anger. No, anger is not inherently wrong not inherently sinful. There, 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 there can be this thing called righteous anger, which only Jesus ever did perfectly. But scripture warns us that, that we can sin in our anger. And so often what lies beneath the anger is grief. And we have to be willing to grieve. It may have been injustice we have faced in our own life. We must be willing to grieve that first. Or it could just be the grief so many of us are feeling right now because of the pandemic. Losses of so many kind ranging from what seems like inconsequential to great losses. We must learn to grieve first and avoid the blame game. We must give others room to grieve. And let me tell you this, more often than not, what our anger does is it clouds. It clouds us. And what grief does is it clarifies for us what's really going on. We so often bypass that grief and go straight to anger and start fighting for some cause, whatever that cause is or whatever camp it is that you're on, and we miss the human beings on the other side, the people made in our image. We can have conviction as people, and compassion because the gospel enables us to say with Jesus himself, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let us approach each other with that kind of humility, knowing that we're all broken, knowing that we all sin, knowing that we all are also people who face sin and are sinned against and face injustice, And may we again say with Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. May we embrace the gospel to that extent as we face all that is going on in our world. And may we again come back to seeing how revelation calls us to not absolutize anything in this world, that only God himself is absolute. And that as we put our thinking our life in that perspective that we will be enabled to go live in a way that shares the love of Christ to this world. We are called not to be militants for Christ, but to be martyrs for Christ because of this precious lamb that was slain for us. Let's pray.